Welcome back to Divine Direction. This is part four and the last part of this series. So if this is your first day with us, don't go, oh, crud, I'm in on the last of the movie, you know, or don't worry, everything is a standalone. But besides that, the good news is I'm going to do a quick review for all of us, which is helpful to all of us, and it'll help you too if this is your first Sunday. In this series, Divine Direction, we are looking at how God is helping us to walk with him in a divine direction. And sometimes we struggle with the whole decision-making thing. We come to these big moments. We're trying to figure out what to do and that kind of thing. We're getting some help on that. Here was our focus in the first week. We talked about making sure you focus on who before do. God is very concerned about who you are and who you're becoming. I'd say more concerned about that than picking which thing you're doing. Because, so always be focused on, will this help me become who God wants me to be? And that'll help you out of your who, choose the right do. The next thing we focused on is focus on why before what? Because why you're choosing a particular option is really important to God. Because motive matters. If you're choosing this because, oh man, I'll make a whole bunch of more money here and this is great for my kingdom, blah, blah, blah. That's not a great why compared to I will be able to honor God and glorify him in this decision more, so be looking at why before the particular what. In week two, we focused on wisdom to decide and how God is more than happy to help you in the process of gaining uh, good decisions through looking at wise decisions. Walking with wise people helps you make wise decisions, and God is happy to advise you and watch over you and guide you. We looked at the image of the lamp. God's word is a lamp to the feet. It's not a headlight with high beams. It shows way distant future things. He gives you enough information to take your next step, even though you don't have any certainty about what that will lead to, and he will lead you very well close by. A lot of people came up to me after the message we talked about that and said, you know what, if he showed us the high beams, we'd be frightened and we wouldn't go there because of all the stuff coming. He only shows us enough to know what we do now. The uh, last week, we looked at stages in the divine direction, the first stage being the Spirit's prompting. And with the Spirit's prompting, if you take action on that prompting, it moves you along a predictable pathway where it can end up becoming a compelling. And it usually goes like this. You act on the Spirit's prompting, and then you actually step into certain uncertainties. In other words, you don't know what's coming, and you're certain you won't know what's coming when you take that first step. There's, a, there's uncertainties certainly are coming. Okay, And that's just a predictable stage in the process. And then as you keep walking with God, there is a predictable resistance that'll take place because you're walking with God, honoring God, there's a predictable resistance. But if you continue walking with God, that prompting becomes a compelling and you have this uncommon confidence because you're making it through these uncertainties. You're making it through this resistance and you just are growing in confidence that God is gonna be doing a wonderful thing. So that's the review. Now we're heading into faith to start. Jim, I thought we were concluding today. Faith to start is how we're going to conclude, to just get you sort of motivated to take that start. Our focus today reads this way. Divine direction inspires us to start something new. Some of you are already going, 
Hoo-hoo, let's go. Um, we're excited about starting something new, but we are strange creatures. Now, I don't mean to be mean there. Let me just put it this way. I'm a strange creature. I get excited about the new thing God is doing, but inside of me, there is also this tendency to go, no, no, no. And the reason for that is this. Every start means I got to get out of my comfort zone now. And I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. So practically speaking, there's an, I ought to do this. We, we sense that. I should do this. And we sense that. You, you probably do too. I'll, I'll take a simple one. I really ought to get back to exercising. <laughs> I really should get back. I should start. But inside I'm going, no, no, not yet. You know, because that would mean changing what I've become comfortable with. Same thing with the whole diet thing, all right? Faith to start. Inside there's this reluctance to take the step that could be a great step, but I resist it. We are strange creatures. That is the reality. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression because when I talk about faith to start, I'm not talking about faith in myself. I can do this. Okay, I'm not talking about that at all. I am talking about taking a faith step, which means I can't do this without God, but I'm going to exercise my faith and ask God to help me take this start. So because we're strange creatures... Here's the challenge for so many of us. It's often the start that stops us. We're going to talk about faith to start, but the very thing that stops us is that first step because we have these certain uncertainties and this resistance and this internal resistance. And, you know, so like God has placed this thing on you and you're thinking, I really ought to switch jobs, or I really ought to go to school, or I really ought to work on developing me reading the scriptures. I really ought to change my habit, etc., etc. And God has placed that ought to on you, but because of that start and getting out of your comfort zone, you keep pushing it off. Now, we'll take it up a notch. How do you do something big? That's the big question for today. How do you start something big? The kind of faith that we're talking about, it's not the kind of faith where it's faith in yourself. I can do this. I'm going to start that. Well, I think I can do this. I'm going to start that. No, the kind of faith we're talking about is where you see something, something needs to happen. This is a big deal. Somebody needs to do something, and then you decide, I'm somebody. I should start, and it's way bigger than you are. You think, I, how could I do anything? It's way bigger than you. We're talking about that kind of thing where you're looking for God to help you start something that's really big. I mean, if it's not really big, why, why do you even need faith? Faith is trusting a God who sees what you can't see. He sees the steps. He sees the future. He sees what can be done. That's what we're talking about today. So how do you start something really big? It's not what you think. Point number one, write it down. Start small. How do you start something really big? You need to start small. And small beginnings are not to be despised. Small beginnings are little things that start a new direction. You might be, no, 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 okay. I'll start this. It's just a little start. But that new direction is going to, over time, be really, really big. 
We're choosing Nehemiah from God's word as the example. We could choose so many different individuals from so many places, but the book of Nehemiah, here's how it begins. Chapter one, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Okay, time out, stop the video. Here we are. Nehemiah, we need to place this just in case we're not familiar with the history. Nehemiah is writing around 400 plus B.C., Okay? What has taken place is 140 years earlier, what God predicted would happen because of Jewish rebellion, disobedience, unfaithfulness to the covenant, the prophets kept saying over and over again, God said this would happen, God said this would happen, this is going to happen. The Jewish nation was invaded by an enemy nation and they were destroyed. And the last of the remnant people were exiled out of their own land. Jerusalem, their key city, where the temple is, their temple is all destroyed, it's in rubbles, and they are exiled by the Babylonian kingdom. It's been so long that the Persian kingdom has overtaken the Babylonian kingdom. And now Nehemiah is serving Artaxerxes, the Persian king, 140 years later, there was a delegation that comes back after checking out Jerusalem because some 70 years previous, Remnants starts going back to Jerusalem to rebuild just like God said they, they could and would if they were faithful to him. So now we're picking up in his description of this report. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now I have read this for decades thinking what has happened is it just hits them really hard that 140 years ago the walls are destroyed and it's still not built up. That is not what's happening. I just discovered this go around studying that this is a fresh new destruction of walls that have been rebuilt. Ezra mentions the walls that are rebuilt. Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, uh, Haggai and Zechariah mention the rebuilding of the walls. And so there's this encouragement among the remnant people that we're gonna get back to our land. We're gonna be the people of God again. This is going to be rebuilt and glory of Israel is gonna be restored. And now this report says there's been another devastation. All the walls have been knocked down again. And so he's just cut to the heart and he's weeping. And he's thinking somebody's got to do something about this. And so he starts with a very small step. He begins to pray. So we read this. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. Now we're gonna continue this prayer in a moment, but I wanna stop right there on, he's basing this prayer on God who creates covenants for his people. We need to understand what that's all about. It's based on this that he's crying out to God, based on the covenant God has made. So I have a, the whole Bible in five minutes video for you from the Bible project people on this theme of the God of covenants. Here we go. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or 
maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure. 
somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Side note before we continue, the Bible Project people uh, make all these uh, videos available for free. Um, I recently started the Through a Bible reading plan with the Bible Project people. They have hundreds of videos, uh, book overview videos and theme videos as you're reading through the Bible, and they're explaining it in this quick uh, overview kind of way. Very helpful. Uh, You can get it for your phone as an app or, or look for the Bible Project, I think it's scripture reading, and I can show you afterwards what the app looks like if you want to know what you're looking for. Continuing on, back into Nehemiah's prayer. Here's how he prays. Now, in the context of the video, Jesus hasn't come yet. The covenant is all busted apart, and they're trying to restore everything. That's why he's hurting so much, trying to get back to the nation, try to get it restored. Here's he's, he's crying out based on this covenant. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for a name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by the great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. What he's speaking about is in the next line, I was cupbearer to the king. That was his job. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the government who is now um, over the the whole nation of Israel, and he had become cupbearer. And what that means is he had a privileged trust relationship with the king. He would taste the king's food or the king's drink every time before the king did so that if there was poison in it, he would die before the king would drink it. 
That was a very trusting relationship. But he's asking God, give me favor when I ask this king of the favor to let me go do something about this. And he knows he's stepping outside of the box. If he's going to ask this, the king could decide, no, who are you? What do you think you're asking? And he could lop his head off. So it's a very dangerous prayer, but he's asking God for favor before he takes the next step. He starts with a small step, prayer. And then he prays this prayer. And you can keep reading. The king, Artaxerxes, says, how long are you going to be gone? And then (laughs) Nehemiah says, how long? He says, okay. And what else do you need? And he just keeps asking for more and more and more. Nehemiah eventually gets the favor and approval to leave the king the job. It's a, that's a, who's going to fill that spot, you know, this trusted position. King says, okay. And he gives him the letters to go and do this thing and the money to fund it. And he travels 850 miles to go start this project. And he's not even a builder. He's just the white collar king guy, Okay. So here's where we are so far in this story, learning how to follow in the divine direction. Here's the concept I want you to get a hold of. Covenant partners become divine burden carriers. If you're walking with God to bless the world, God will prompt you to see a need to carry a burden to bless the world in a particular way. And you'll become a burden carrier, a divine burden carrier. Somebody needs to do something about this. This isn't right. This got to be remedied. And then you realize you're that somebody to pray about it, to do something about it. And you take a step, not knowing how it's too big for me. What am I going to do? This is what Nehemiah takes on. We continue in the story in Nehemiah and we read this. After he's traveled, after he's gone there, after he's taken a bunch of other steps into the unknown, he doesn't know how it's going to go. And did I mention? (laughs) There is a new resistance to the wall that just tore it all down, and now he's going to try to rebuild it in the middle of this resistance. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall. He's talking to all the faithful remnant who have returned just a thousand or two or several thousand, small, small entourage that are trying to hold it together while this devastation is taking place. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Oh, the encouragement swells in their hearts. The king funded this? Artaxerxes, the king gave you these letters? They respond, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I want you to fill in a couple of blanks on your outline now. You have to be careful filling this in. A, you don't have to have the faith to finish. B, you just have to have the faith to start. Don't get these words blanked in the wrong order. Don't put start at A and finish at B because that's what we tend to do. We tend to think you don't have to have the faith to start. You just have to have the faith to finish. It's like, I'm not going to start until I know how to finish. And that's where we resist. We don't want to go with this thing because I have no idea where it's going. It's too scary. It's too frightening. I live there. Okay? This is way big. Too big for me. But faith is for that. Where you don't have to have the faith to finish, where see how it's all going to be done. Faith means God sees, and I'm walking in the unknown while walking with him and being a covenant partner. You just have to have the faith to start. On the screen is Ruthie Unheaney. I didn't ask permission to show her picture. 
I didn't, anyway, Ruth Ann Haney is a charter member of Verde Valley Christian Church. Our church started in 1967. Ruth Ann Haney is still uh, very active in our church. She's 91. I need to tell you a little bit about her faith to start. In 1967, she was a school teacher and she was a career school teacher, and she met at a school, and a few people gathered together, let's start a church, and they started meeting at that school facility. And then some things changed, and they moved their little group of people to a house and kept meeting to be a church. And then some of those people said, you know what? If we're gonna be a church, we're gonna need to have some property eventually, and they had some vision to buy some property, and they pooled their resources and bought some property. These different members, and she was one of them, took turns paying the mortgage payment on the property. That property, by the way, later on, they decided to build their first building. They built it with used bricks. The ladies were scrubbing off and cleaning and chipping away the uh, stuff on the bricks so that they're somewhat presentable while the men were laying the bricks on their first building. Meanwhile, Ruth Ann is teaching Sunday school and, and uh, running vacation Bible school every year. And she was a secretary to the board and years and years go by. And then this young gentleman by the name of Jim Hammond shows up and he's gonna be a pastor of this church. And Ruth Ann Haney by this time has just retiring from a whole career of being school teacher. And I say, would you be interested in being my secretary? And she says yes. And so the next 16 years after retirement, she's my secretary until she's 81, I think it is, and <laughs> continues to serve as a secretary to the board and doing all kinds of stuff all the time, cooking countless meals and everything, work, 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 work. In fact, she was the lady we chose when we heard about this multi-million dollar complex that was available, and there's a long story behind that, but the favor of God was right there. She was the one that said, this is just a drop in the bucket. She held the bucket. And everybody brought their offerings for the drop in the bucket offering, and we got in this place. By the way, this multi-million dollar complex is fully paid for. We are here. This is the kind of thing where she had no idea in her life that taking that first step would lead to here, no clue, but you just take a step, walk with God, what's the next step? And there are hundreds of you just like her, where you are taking steps in the divine direction that God is calling you to walk, and you don't know where it's going yet, but God is expanding the story and expanding the story and doing with it what he wants to do to bless and be a blessing through you. Point number two. Take the next step. So it's not enough to start. You have to hang on to God and take another step. And hang on to God and take another step. So here's what it looked like for Nehemiah. Chapter two, he says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and the Arab heard about it, at first I want to say Gresham, no, Geshem, no, Jeshem, no, whatever, uh, these names are tough to read, and when you're in a small group, don't get intimidated. Just sneeze through them, and you can just do like I did, okay? Heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. This is part of the resistance. And if you read Nehemiah, man, they come from left and right and keep trying to stop the work, but God keeps blessing. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. On the screen, I want us to 
get a hold of a concept that I think is a good one. More than likely, you will overestimate what you can do in the short term. I do this all the time. It's so predictable that I do this. When my wife asks me, how long will it take you to do such and such a project? I tell her, I can do this in about such and such. She always doubles it in her head and adds some, and she's a lot closer to the reality than every time what I'm thinking it's going to be. I overestimate what I think I can do in the short term. But something else is true. You will vastly underestimate what God will do through you over a lifetime of faithfulness. And that's why I wanted to tell you the story of Ruth Ann Haney. Every one of us can have that kind of story. By the way, November's coming. She's still making the Thanksgiving dinner. And she's still recruiting people to make that happen so that if people don't have a place to go to, you can come and have Thanksgiving with a whole group of others here. That's something that takes place, and she's still pulling that off. So don't, you'll overestimate the short term, but you're going to underestimate what faithfulness and walking with God can accomplish through you. Right now, I just want to do a sideways thing. Here's a chart I want to show you. This is red light, green light. How full is your worship service? This is a graphic representation of our three services. The reason I share this with you is that you only come to the service you come to. You might go one or the other, but most people have no idea what's happening in the other two services. So this is just a graphic representation. At the 8 o'clock, it's green light. At this service and the 11 o'clock, this is the average attendance, averaged out is yellow light. But occasionally, we have red light Sundays where it's like, oh, too full. Some family comes in, they can't sit together. It's really hard to find a seat. That happens occasionally. And so the reason I tell you this is that I want you to see this because maybe it's too full on some day. I want you to know there's one that's not. (laughs) Because I'd love to see this go. I can't orchestrate this, but I'd love just to see this go, yellow light, yellow light, yellow light, before we have to make those huge kind of changes that have to be made. Why do they have to be made? I like it just the way it is. It has to be made because we're trying not to fill seats. We're trying to change lives. And if we keep changing lives, like that is what's happening. We're seeing lives change. Marriages are coming together. People are coming off of addiction and their lives are putting back together. Crime levels are literally dropping as individuals are changing. The whole community can see what? Your life just changed that way and your life just changed that way and how did you do it? And they hear, wow, I want to see what that's about. That brings glory to God. All right, so if I could orchestrate it, we'd go yellow, yellow, yellow and then we, with one of them that goes red, we got to go, okay, so what are we doing next? And that's the thing that's about me. It's like, I've got steps to take as a leader but I'm just kind of telling you the big picture because I'd like it to be a little bit easier for a while before we go with those big steps that have to happen when one gets too big. All right, so here's kind of a wrap-up as we're moving into the wrap-up. Dream big, start small, but most of all, start. What is the small step that God is prompting you where you feel like I ought to, but you've been reluctant to? Start with a small step. The smallest step in the right direction might be the biggest step in your whole life. We're going to finish today with this prayer. On the screen, please read this silently because I'm going to ask you if you'll consider it to read it out loud with us. So read it silently to see what it is that I'm asking you to consider praying. If 
This is a prayer you'd like to pray. Remember, these are just words, and you, unless you pray it in faith, you kind of embrace these words and in faith say these words and ask God to connect with your life in this way. It's a powerful pray. It's a way for your blank pages to be changed by these steps in covenant partnership with God. And so let's pray this together. Dear God, you are the covenant-making God, inviting me to be in a partnership with you in your grand story to bless the world. Please give me the courage to dream big and start small. I trust that you will help me with faith to start and then after starting, faith to take my next steps even though I don't know what those details are right now. What I know for sure is that I need you. My dear Lord Jesus, because you took huge steps under the weight of the cross to give me life, I want to live my life to help honor you and help others. Amen. Amen? That's a prayer. We need to go out there and take a little step. All right? Now, here's where we're heading next week. Next week, we're starting a whole new series in the month of November. It sounds kind of generic, but there's nothing generic about it. The series is simply going to be called Be Thankful. Appropriate, right? November? But every week, we're going to be addressing the items that need to be addressed in a very personal way because we live in a culture where the angst and rage and frustration of life is growing and growing. There's conflict between people. We, of all people, have answers because we have reasons to be thankful. And we're going to give all those reasons some uh, direction to us personally, step by step, week by week, to grow in our thankfulness before we celebrate thanksgiving to our God.